0: He's the guy when Jesus is resurrected and is calling out to his disciples, doesn't wait to paddle the boat to shore. He jumps out and he goes to Jesus. And because he goes boldly to Jesus, he's restored. Don't wait. Be restored. Now, you think about last week and where the gospel of John ends in John chapter 20. And he gives us the reason why he wrote the book. And it almost feels like it's the end of the gospel, but there's another chapter tacked on to the end of it. And so what is the deal with this chapter, with these last 25 verses? What is the deal with what's going on here? We get some insight into something that I think is pretty important. And it makes me think of the idea of restoration. So I want to share with you a little bit. My uh, my grandfather. All my all my life growing up, my grandfather was always working on something in his garage. Now he he grew up in the Depression, so this is the cycle of how things would go. He would buy something that's completely rusted out or a piece of scrap that he would just take for free and he would bring it to his garage and then he would restore it and he would spend all kinds of money getting parts, putting it together, painting it, making it look great. One of the the coolest things was he had a, I don't remember what year, but it was a Harley Davidson from the 60s that he he refurbished and restored. And then after riding it for about a week, he sold it because he couldn't deal with the fact that he spent all of that money, and so he wanted to get it back. But then he couldn't sit still, so he had to have a new project, and that was sort of the way that his life just always worked. Now, there's two projects in particular that hit me pretty hard. They were at the end of his life. um, Right before he came down with leukemia, he had a, a Ford pickup truck from the 50s that he was restoring and he got about halfway through that restoration before leukemia stopped him from being able to finish it. And then there was this old antique gas pump that he always wanted to restore but never got to it. And so my my dad took those off his hands and finished the restoration of, of both. Now the, the pickup truck my grandfather got to see and in his amazing fashion would always explain what he would have done differently, um, because that's just the kind of guy that he was. But he got to see it, he got to ride in it, he got to look at it and see that. Now that pickup truck was supposed to get handed down to me as uh, my inheritance, and I really missed that thing, because it ended up being sold, because one of the problems with restoration is that after you restore it, the mileage doesn't go away, and there's still lots of problems. So as beautiful as the thing looked, there were still all kinds of things that needed to be done, and the money that needed to be dumped into it was just too much for what the truck was worth. So we sold it. Uh, but then there was this antique gas pump. Now, my, my dad worked on that as hard as he could. He stayed up sleepless nights finishing that because as my grandfather was at the, the waning hours of his life, in the hospital with leukemia, he kept getting, my dad would go visit him and and show him pictures of the progress. And when he completed it and finished it, my grandfather actually, again, a man who grew up during the depression, you can't tell him what to do. He snuck out of the hospital to go see it. He couldn't, he didn't have the strength to get out of the car, but he pulled up in the driveway to look at this antique gas pump that was restored. And he got to see it before he passed away. That was a really cool moment for him. And my dad has since traveled with that gas pump and taken it to three different houses. He went from Palmyra, New York to Chicago, Illinois, and then back to Canandaigua, New York with that thing because it holds such sentimental value. Now, I don't know if I'm gonna inherit that thing, but. It holds a lot of sentimental value. The problem is, if it goes to me, I have no idea how to keep it. Because I know nothing about restoring antiques. I just don't. But it's just this cool piece of of hardware. But even though it's been restored and it looks brand new, the mileage doesn't go away. It still has a story from its past. You still know what era it's from when you look at it. Even though it looks brand new, you know it's not from 2023 because it still has a story to tell. And what we're going to see here is restoration, but the mileage didn't go away. There's still a story to tell with Peter. And so that's what we're going to look at today as we jump into John chapter 21. So if you're following along, John chapter 21, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, After these things, after what things? Listen to last week's message, you'll know what. Jesus showed himself again to the disciples. So Jesus is resurrected, and he's now showing himself again, showing off to the disciples that he is alive. And he's at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Now Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. There's about seven disciples hanging out together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we are going with you. So they went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. So this is the story. Jesus has appeared to his disciples a couple of times at this point. They are aware that he is alive, but they don't know where he's going to show up next. And a few of the disciples are hanging out together, waiting. Now, the last time we saw Peter in the Gospel of John, he was denying his Savior. He was denying that he knew Jesus three times on the night of Jesus' arrest. That's the last picture we have of Peter. And at this point, he's run to the tomb. They've figured out that Jesus is alive, and Jesus has appeared in front of him a couple of times. And so Peter's aware that Jesus is alive, but what is he doing? He goes fishing. Now, there's a lot of sermons that have been preached that talk about how this is Peter going back to his old life because Peter is returning to fishing. He's returning to what he knew. Peter was a fisherman before Jesus called him into the ministry, and so it looks like he's going back to his old life. Now, part of that might be true, but that's not what I'm here to discuss about him. The point is, Peter didn't do nothing. He knew Jesus was alive. He didn't know where he was going to show up next, but he, did, he decided not to do nothing. He had to do something with his time. And so he went back to what he knew. He went fishing. He got into motion. Let me explain why I think this is important. In my high school days, my very first car, anybody remember their first car? Piece of junk, right? Let me tell you about my beautiful first car. It was a 1990 Hyundai Excel hatchback. If you don't know what that car is, here's a description that will help you. An aluminum can with four wheels. If you hit a speed bump, you might flip over. If you hit a squirrel, your car might get wrecked. That is the kind of car that I had. Here's the beautiful thing about that car, one time, I drove it over a set of railroad tracks that are pretty large. uh, And I wasn't paying attention to how fast I was going. And so I got quite a bit of air. And when I landed on the tires, I'm surprised that the car just didn't break into pieces. But what did happen was the speedometer stopped working. So for the rest of the time I owned that car, I never knew how fast I was going. And I was just trying to judge my speed by what was happening around me, but since I lived in the country, there was often no one around me, so I never knew how fast I was going, and thankfully, I never got in trouble in that car. But that was my first first car. Now, here's something interesting, and those of you who are young enough, this might not make sense to you, but this car did not have power steering. When I say that, I don't mean that it ran out of power steering fluid or the power steering stopped working. I mean, it was built without power steering. So this is what happens in a car that doesn't have power steering. It's really difficult to steer or move the wheels at all unless you're in motion. So when you're parked, if you're trying to cut the wheel before you move, you are basically just doing a workout for the day because the wheel is so hard to move. But once the car is in motion, you almost don't even notice that you don't have power steering. And so the point is when you don't know what to do next, or you don't know what Jesus is calling you to, or you don't know what you need to do, or what he has for you, sometimes it's good to just do something. And Peter's doing something he knew, and he was doing something he did well, and he's in motion, meaning, It might be easier to steer him if he's in motion and waiting for the Lord rather than sitting still because you can't move the wheel. So Peter's in motion and the disciples go with him. We pick up in in verse 4. It says, When the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was him. Now, Again, the disciples don't recognize Jesus. Why? Well, it's dawn is breaking. It's kind of dark. He probably looks like a silhouette. They're out on the sea. And also, Jesus is in his resurrected body. Now, they're remembering the graphic detail of when they had seen him being whipped. And Jesus is now in his resurrected body, and he doesn't look exactly the same because he's renewed. They don't recognize him. But Jesus stands on the shore, and he says to them, Children, have you any food? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, or if, you know, if you're a sailor, on the starboard side, and uh, you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw in it because of the multitude of fish. So this is what Jesus said to them. As he's standing on the shore, he shouts out to them, have you caught anything? And they said, no. And so his wonderful, amazing idea is just put the net on the other side of the boat as if moving seven feet is going to change everything. And I'm sure they were all thinking, whatever, but I don't want to deal with this guy. So they moved the net to the other side of the boat, and then unbeknownst to them, the boat is starting to get full with fish. And so now they catch all this fish, and it says, therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, so John is now speaking to Peter, and he says, it is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard it, Heard it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. So Peter is not wearing his outer tunic. He's kind of in his intimates. And he puts on his outer garment, which if you're going to swim to shore, probably not the best idea to put on more weight. But that's what he did. And he goes and he jumps and he, he swims toward Jesus. He said, but the other disciples came in. Uh, the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. So Peter, as usual, is the one who acts with the most uh, ambition, or he acts in haste. He doesn't wait. He is, uh, he's an impulse kind of guy. And so he jumps into the sea and he swims toward Jesus. Now why why does he do that? Well, because in Luke chapter 5, we find out how, G, how Peter was called into the ministry. Peter was fishing, and Jesus asked to use the boat, and he stood on the boat on the water because the water helped him project his voice to the people where he was teaching. But then after teaching, he says to Peter, hey, why don't we go out a little bit and go fishing? And they hadn't caught anything all night long, just like this. But as they go out into the water in Luke chapter 5, Jesus tells them to pull the nets over the boat. They dump the nets and they fill up quickly and they end up filling two boats full of fish and they drag them to shore. And Peter kneels down on the sand on the beach in front of Jesus and says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, follow me. But what's the point of all this? Well, Peter didn't just do nothing, but he also went back to the place where he met Jesus. So it might be seeming that he went back to his old life, but fishing isn't sinful. He wasn't going back to a sinful behavior. He was going back to where he met Jesus. Now, for me, I remember a time in my life where I was kind of confused. I had been working hard trying to get into ministry and nothing was, happen, nothing was happening. I got a little bit depressed. I stopped going to church for a little while. And I remember just one day it came to me that I, I just I, something had to happen. I was praying to God in my car. I felt completely disconnected from my friends. I felt completely disconnected from God. And I just drove to my old church, the place where I got saved. I remember walking in there. Here's the thing about that church. It's comp- it burnt down at one point. So the floor plan is completely different the whole thing is reversed. It wasn't home. It didn't feel like home because it wasn't the same place where I met Jesus. But just a couple of doors over from that church, the youth pastor that led me in prayer when I got saved at that church is now the senior pastor next door. So I drove over there and I talked to him. And here's the thing. I still talk to that man and every time I talk to him, I feel like I'm 15 years old again. And even though he said to me that in, in some ways there are things that I know that he doesn't know, but I still feel like I'm looking for his approval in some ways because it brings me back to the place where I met Jesus, where I was just this kid who didn't know anything, who didn't understand. And there's this role model sitting in front of me, this guy who had the knowledge I needed to know. And he wasn't afraid to share it with me. And talking to him brings me back to that place. Talking to Tony brings me back to the place where I met Jesus because he's the one who led me to him. And I'm always going to be thankful for that. And so Peter goes back to the place where he met Jesus. And Jesus gives him everything he was looking for. Because what Jesus does is he reenacts the meeting with Peter. Now there's been some tension. Peter denied Jesus three times after telling him he would never do that. In fact, he told Jesus he would die for him. He wouldn't be like the other disciples. He wouldn't run. He would die for him. And instead, he denied him three times and then ran. So Peter goes back to the place where he met Jesus, and Jesus gives him that moment that catching a multitude of fish again just off the Sea of Galilee and showing the power and authority he has over nature, right in front of Peter's eyes, and he comes to Jesus again. And so it says, Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals coals there, and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have caught. Here's an interesting thing about this. Jesus already had fish and bread. He already had a meal for his disciples ready to go. He doesn't need what they bring to the table, but he invites them to bring what they have anyway. That should be both encouraging and humbling to every single one of us. Because God doesn't need us. He doesn't need what we have. That should humble us, but it should encourage us that he wants us to bring what we have anyway. And he wants to bring us to bring what we have to him, even though he's already ha- he already has enough to feed us. He still wants us to bring what we have to the table. And so they bring the fish. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And though there were so many, the net was not broken. Um this is just funny to me because they actually took the time to count the fish. Just leave that for what it is. It's just humorous to me, can you imagine? Like Jesus is resurrected. He has appeared out of nowhere multiple times. He's showed up in locked rooms when the door was closed and somehow got in there. He's now shown up in miraculously brought a huge catch of fish after you professionals who know exactly what you're doing haven't been able to catch anything all night long and by moving the net 7 feet he brings you a boatload of fish and then you take that moment to count it all instead of spending time with Jesus i don't know what that means but it's funny to me how jesus said to them come and eat breakfast yet none of the disciples dared ask him who are you knowing that it was the lord So then Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Isn't it interesting that Jesus makes them breakfast? Even after the resurrection, Jesus is still serving. He's still serving you. He's still giving us what we need if we're looking to him. But now it gets really interesting. So, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. Now he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. But What's going on here? We miss a lot in translation of what's going on here. Now let's remember where Peter's at. The tension. He denied Jesus three times. He's going back to what he knew He's going back to the place where he met Jesus. He's looking for restoration. Jesus is there on the shore. And Jesus says to him, do you love me? Now, it's important that we understand what's going on here. Because there are multiple words that get translated into the word love in English. And so we don't see the exactness of what's going on. Because what Jesus says to Peter, when he says love, he says the word agapeo which is the sacrificial type of love in action, the type of love that Jesus has for us. Wholeheartedly, self-sacrificial, unending, unconditional love. And he says, Peter, do you love me like that? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. But Peter's response when he says love is the word phileo, a brotherly type of love, a respect, an admiration, but not a wholehearted, self-sacrificial kind of love. So what you see in Peter is he's no longer boasting. See, before the crucifixion, Peter was the one shouting out loud, I will go to the grave for you. In fact, I'm not going to be like these other disciples. I'm not going to run. I'm going to run to you. I'm going to run with you. I will be willing to die for you. He claims to have self-sacrificial love. Now, after denying Jesus three times, Jesus confronts him about the type of mouth Peter had before the crucifixion. And Peter's humbled. And he doesn't feel confident to say that he has that kind of love for Jesus. But he still loves him. He knows that he loves him and he wants more. Now, Jesus actually said, do you love me more than these? We don't know what he's talking about. We don't know if he's talking about the food. We don't know if he's talking about the other disciples. We don't know what he's talking about. But we know that Jesus is asking him, do you love me with the type of love you said you had before the crucifixion? And after the resurrection, Peter says, I love you, but I'm not going to boast anymore. I'm not going to pretend that I have more love for you than I actually acted out on. So Jesus says to him again, Peter, or Simon, do you love me? And the second time, Jesus uses the same word. He says, agapeo, and he's confronting him again. He's saying, do you love me? Do you agapeo me? Do you love me with that unconditional, unending, self-sacrificial type of love? Do you love me more than anything? And Peter responds again, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, phileo. You know that I admire you. You know that I respect you. And then Jesus says to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? But this time, Jesus doesn't say agapeo. He says phileo. Jesus reduces the level of love that he's asking out out of Peter. And then it says Peter was grieved. That's why Peter was grieved. The expectation that Jesus had set the first two times is now reduced because of Peter's situation. And he says, do you phileo me? And Peter says to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Peter says, phileo. What's happening is he's remembering. He's remembering his failure. He's remembering the boast that he had. He's remembering how much pride was in his heart when he thought he could really stand for Jesus when it mattered most. And now he's also remembering that Jesus predicted that Peter would fail him. And Peter didn't believe Jesus at the time, but then he denied him three times. And on the other side of that, he's grieved because he couldn't live up to what he said. Then he says, you, you know that I love you. You know all things. You knew I was going to fail then, and you know what kind of man I am now. You know I didn't do what I said I would do. You know that I love you. And isn't it interesting that Peter denied Jesus three times? And Jesus is asking him this question three times because he's restoring Peter. He's restoring the failure. But just because Jesus is restoring Peter doesn't mean the mileage is gone. That story is still there and that cloud is still hanging over Peter's head as Jesus is talking to him. So Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, You girded yourself and walked where you wish, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. So now Jesus gives him a word of encouragement. After this troublesome deal where Peter's dealing with the emotions and the failure, Jesus says to him, you're going to live a long life. You're going to die old. And when you die, you're going to die exactly the way you said you would. You are going to live up to the promises you made before the crucifixion. And what did happen was Peter, in his old age, was brought to Rome. And because of his belief in the resurrection and his ability to spread the gospel, the Romans wanted to stop him. And so they They crucified Peter, but it's told us, we're told that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy of the same death as Jesus. So he requested to be crucified upside down, and he was. And so Peter actually lives up to what he said before the crucifixion when he said, Jesus, I will follow you to the bitter end, no matter what it means. And he would glorify God in that way, and he would live for the gospel, even when it was at its most difficult. And he did do what he said he would do. And so it comes full circle. He knows he's going to live a long life, but he also knows he's going to die the way that he said he would be willing to do. He lives up to his boast only after he's humbled and restored by Jesus. Because if you think you can do it on your own power, you're wrong. But if you can do it with the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the resurrection of Jesus, you can become completely new. And when you're restored, you have a whole lot more horsepower than you did before. So then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who... Who is the one who betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? So what really happening is here is Peter, after this restoration and this, this talk with Jesus, he looks over at John and he says, But what about him? See, because Peter Peter's being told by Jesus to tend the lambs, to feed the sheep. He's being told that he's going to fulfill the promise that Jesus made him when he said, Simon, you're now called Peter. You're called Rock, because on this rock I will build my church. And Jesus is telling him, you're going to fulfill all the promises you made. You're going to build the church, and you're going to die the way you said you would. You're going to go to the bitter end for the gospel, because you will live up to the promises you made. But Peter, in this moment, looks over at John, the only one who was willing to go to the crucifixion. And he says, what about What about him? Jesus said to Peter, If I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then the saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So, Peter, in his confusion and wondering, why are you giving me this? Why are you still giving me this responsibility? Look at John. What about him? John was at the crucifixion. He was the only one who didn't run. And Jesus says to him, don't worry what he does. You follow me. You don't play the what about game. You don't play the comparison game. You don't judge yourself by John's actions. You follow me. You are you. I created you uniquely for a purpose. You follow your purpose. Don't worry about what John is doing. And Jesus says, if it's my will that he remains until I come, then so be it. What is that to you? And then there's this rumor that everybody thinks John's going to make it until Jesus' return. That's not what Jesus said. But it is interesting that John is the one who wrote the book of Revelation. Because even though John didn't live to see Jesus come back, physically he did see it and he predicted the future for us and wrote the book of revelation and john was blessed with that and he says if i if i will it that he remain till i come what is that to you so even though john didn't see the physical return of jesus in its time he was transported there and wrote it down in prophecy and he will be there when it does happen but it's also interesting that he tells Peter, that's none of your business. Because it's, it's not about who's better at what, it's about do you follow me? So what, John didn't run? So what, John was at the crucifixion? So what, I gave John the responsibility to take care of Mary? So what, You have a responsibility that I've given you. You follow me, not John. So it says, this is the disciple who testifies these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. So that's the end of John's gospel. That's how he concludes it. And what do we get out of this last chapter? Well, I think there's three big things to learn from this chapter. One, occupy till Jesus comes. I think Jesus is coming back. I don't know how soon, but I would wager sooner than later. But I could easily be wrong. But that doesn't mean I sit on my hands and do nothing. And when I don't know what to do, I might as well get in motion so that it's easier for God to steer me. Occupy till he comes. The second thing is experience restoration. I don't know what's going on. I know that the world is dark. I don't know where anybody sits in their relationship with God, but I do know that he's calling out to you, just like he called out to Peter. If there's anything that you feel like or you know is holding you back from your relationship with God. Jesus wants to restore you. All three denials that, Jesus, or that Peter had of Jesus, he was given restoration for, by Jesus. Three times he said, do you love me? And all those denials were turned into beauty. And he was restored and given the opportunity to live out the life he was supposed to. And his failure is still there. The mileage is still there, but the story's changed. It's no longer Peter who denied Jesus. It's now Peter who built the church. And the last thing I think is live boldly. Peter, he's the guy who jumped out of the boat. He's the guy who walked on water because he got out of the boat. He's the guy when Jesus is resurrected and is calling out to his disciples, doesn't wait to paddle the boat to shore. He jumps out and he goes to Jesus. And because he goes boldly to Jesus, he's restored. Don't wait. Be restored. There's a lot. There's a lot of things. I know that there's not a single person in here who has no regrets. Because we're all human. We can all look back and know that there maybe are things that make us timid about our relationship with God or make us wonder if he'll forgive us. You know what? There were 12 guys that followed Jesus, and even in that small group, there was one who couldn't make it. Not everybody does. But don't be that guy. Go boldly to Jesus And understand your failures because Jesus is looking to restore you from your failures and give you a bold new opportunity. And if you experience restoration, you can live boldly and you can occupy until he comes and you can get moving so that he can steer you and you can move the gospel. You can make a difference and you can share what the world needs to know because we live in a world that desperately needs the gospel. So, live boldly, experience restoration, and occupy until he comes. Now, I normally at this point would just say, let's pray and bow our heads, but tonight is communion night. And what a way to go into communion, right? On a John chapter 21, Jesus is there having. Being on the other side of the resurrection, having the ability to offer life because he defeated death. And what does he do? He offers the disciples bread and fish. He offers them a meal. It's a time to restore relationships. It's a time to have a relationship with the people you love. And that's what Jesus decides to do with his disciples to have communion with them, to have a meal with them, to build a relationship with them after the resurrection. Because Jesus is the bread of life. And as we move towards communion and we have this time with the Lord, he's looking to restore you. And in that restoration includes relationship building. And that's what communion is all about. Being in the presence of Christ and having a meal with him. Being restored by the body and the blood of Christ. Because you know about the sacrifice. His body that was broken for you and his blood that was poured out for you. But he came back to life offering life instead of death. And he offers a chance to restore you and to build a relationship with you. And we celebrate that relationship with communion because we have a meal in the presence of Christ. So, what we're going to do is, those of you who are able and willing, please stand and come up the center aisle. um, And we're going to play a song and grab the elements and go back to your seats. And once you get back to your seats, we'll take them together.